Welcome. Today's going to be a particularly fun episode for all the music lovers and music nerds out there, because today I'm joined by Dr. David Barry, professor of music from Converse University and composer. And we're here to talk about Dr. Barry's upcoming book, as well as the conference Resurrecting Romanticism, which is going to be taking place in October. There are going to be lots of leading objectivist thinkers on aesthetics and artists. So let's actually begin by talking about the conference. First of all, David, welcome to The Daily Objective. Nice to see you. Thank you, Nicholas. It's good to see you too. So can you tell us just a little bit about the Resurrecting Romanticism Conference? It's going to be over a weekend in early October. I know uh, Dr. Binswanger is going to be there, Shoshana and uh, Lee Pearson. So tell us a little bit of what the conference is about, what it's going to be focused on and what people have to look forward to. Well, it's a three-day conference, uh, arts conference, um, uh, Columbus Day weekend, which is uh, October 7, 8, and 9. And we even have a, a lecture talking about a little about Columbus Day um, during it. And uh, on the three days, the, the first uh, day, the 7th, there, there will be lectures, and then um, uh, there'll be a chamber music concert in the evening with Alan August Tenor and, uh, as of now, Allegra Durante um, singing uh, some romantic vocal works and then featuring um, string quartet and, and Dr. Seek, Dave Stephen Seek on piano, playing the Schumann Piano Quintet. And then uh, a Sunday is uh, our, our more lectures, and Dr. Binswanger will be the keynote speaker um, at, at the banquet, which will be held at the hotel. And then I think after that, we may have like a scraggle, scrabble game with Dr. Binswanger uh, competing with people. And then on Sunday, uh, we have more more discussions and lectures. There are some panels. There are a couple of panels that are scheduled too. Um, and then in the evening, there will be a concert with a 13-piece chamber orchestra. Uh, Thomas Schubotham will conduct the, the first part which will have an instrumental overture and then uh, three vocal numbers uh, from West Side Story, uh, uh, Le Lazire d'Amore, and Efken um, um, uh, Jägen. And then the, the, at the end of it, I've written a 40-minute one-act opera based on an O. Henry story, To Him Who Waits. And uh, there will be it will the work premiered back in 2002, but um, we'll have it the orchestral version. This will be a premiere of the orchestral version uh, in our recital hall at Converse University. And we call it, by the way, the people ask resurrecting romanticism. As you're probably well aware, uh, Ayn Rand discussed romanticism a great deal in the Romantic Manifesto and said it's pretty much disappeared, except it. Comes up in, in isolated instances, and uh, uh, so we want to try to. We're going to address at the conference ways that we might actually uh, encourage people in academe and the general world to to try to embrace the romantic aesthetic as defined by her, not the conventional romantic aesthetic uh, that that's never gone anywhere actually or changed any. Um, so that's that's kind of the theme behind the whole thing, and we have. Uh, an architect, John Gillis, and we have um, uh, Sandra Shaw, a sculptress, a sculptor, and um, uh, Diane Durante, an art historian, and uh, um, and then Dr. Ben Swanger, Dr. Lee Pearson on a panel. Stephen Seek, of course, will be playing piano. I guess that I think that covers everything. 
That sounds like a really exciting conference. And for the record, the Schumann Piano Quintet in E-flat is one of my all-time favorite chamber works. So that, I think that'll be a real treat for your audience. Can you tell us a little bit about your O. Henry opera, which is going to be, the, you said the orchestral version is going to be premiered at the conference. Yes, and also Shoshana Milgram will be giving a, a talk about, she's an O. Henry expert. She actually invited me to join an O. Henry Society and I've been attending their meetings and they're all excited about it. Uh, the, apparently no one's ever written an O. Henry opera before. Uh, the story, of course, it has a surprise ending. So if you want to see it in the opera, you should probably not read the story. But otherwise, it's called To Him Who Waits. And Shoshana actually told me I've been, I've been under a misapprehension for a long time. There's a, a book of O. Henry stories that says that O. Henry made a musical out of it called Low. And that's what attracted me to it. And I said, boy, this is really great. Um, and it turns out that the the Low, the musical that that he contributed lyrics for, is not to him who waits. So uh, I'm, I'm the only person to have ever said that. And one of my goals was to try to capture um, O. Henry's language and the time. So uh, I've taken every single spoken word out of the story and set it to music. And then uh, I have a, a friend, my uh, a very good friend of mine, um, the, he's, he's passed away a couple of years ago, Ralph Rivera. He created some lyrical uh, poems for me to put in there to make them more uh, opera-like. And uh, I think the video I sent you is one of those. And those are his lyrics. But other, it's all O. Henry, except for the, the uh, contributions by um, Ralph Rivera. Wonderful. And for our viewers who don't know his work, oh, Henry's a wonderful writer. I read many collections of his stories uh, oh, decades ago and found them uh, touching and moving and quite exciting. Now, by the time of the conference, you're hoping that your book that you've been working on for some years will be completed. Your book, How Music Moves Us, The Rule of Two and Beyond. This book is, it, it takes as a starting point some ideas in the introduction to objectivist epistemology, the romantic manifesto. So you're building on some of Rand's ideas. There are also some ways in which you're contributing your own insights, your own reflections, and perhaps departing from some principles or some ideas that Rand lays out in her writings on, for example, the essay Art and Cognition. Uh, let's just begin by talking about what are some ideas by Rand that have influenced your thinking about music, your thinking of aesthetics, and the connection with epistemology, psychoepistemology. Well, I, I have to state, um, back in 1970, uh, thereabouts, I went to a, a live lectures with Marianne Suries on the aesthetics of visual arts, and I was in college at the time. And I had uh, never, I didn't even know what aesthetics were. Most people don't know what they are. Um, and uh, I was so inspired as a music major at the time, I said, mm, has anybody, what is, what, what is music and how does it do what it does? And I noticed there really weren't any answers for that. So I embarked on a, a journey to, to try to find the answers. Uh, there, there are two basic questions I'm trying to answer. One of, and, and in my book, I've tried to answer. One is uh, uh, when Art and Cognition came out in the paperback version of the Romantic Manifesto, I read it and I said, uh, this woman knows exactly what she's talking about. And I'm starting with her definition of art. Um, she says, you know, art is a selective recreation of reality according to an artist's metaphysical value judgments. And so the, to me, the question was, uh, what does music selectively recreate? 
and the fact that it's just tones and rhythms and sounds it's it, it doesn't have it doesn't appear to be conceptual on the surface that's the great mystery of music so i sought out to find an answer to that and i actually through introspection and thinking about music i think i did find the answer all the way back then i've written two essays the one that's the first chapter in my book i wrote in 1982 it's but it's never been published um and uh, and I basically agree with everything she says. Um, so I've met many people over the years who disagree sometimes with major points or minor points. Um, it it just turns out that there's one one area where she she is very very vague and it's not clear what she's talking about. And uh, the second thing is that uh, there are several major issues in music she does not address at all and even partially admits to that in, in art and cognition. And just to take it a step further, back in the end of the 90s, uh, I was part of a phone conference. Uh, we call it Philosophy of Music. And I'm trying to decide how much of that to put in my book because I have I have 111 pages of Word documents of emails and stuff. The members of the conference, Kathy Cross, um, uh, you know, was uh, actually kind of coordinated it. Uh, Harry Binswanger was the moderator, and Alan Godhelf, Stephen Seek, myself, um, um, the um, um, Matt Johnson, Jeff Britting, uh, who else? Uh, Thomas Shubotham, probably, for, oh yeah, somebody named Jeffrey Linden, who I've lost touch with. Um, we all talk sometimes as, as often on the phone for well over an hour, um, a phone conference for um, uh, often twice twice a month from like 1998 through 2002, and uh, and basically we spent most of the time trying to pull my this essay that I have in the first chapter of my book apart. So I I I, I really think I ought to publish those things because I think many objectivists would find the conversation quite scintillating, um, but. Um, uh, I'm probably oversharing here, so I'll let you jump back in. So that's kind of what's going on. Uh, that that's that's what it, where it comes from. And I think one of the points you address in your book is this aspect of the selective recreation and what exactly is it that music selectively recreates. So part of your thesis involves recreating physical action and psychological action. Is it? Can you sort of concisely explain what you mean by those points? Well, when I was solving, trying to solve the problem. You know, I, I said, well, what what is music actually doing? And, you know, as you well know, being a trained musician yourself, that, you know, it takes place in time. And even though drama takes place in time, time is not a, a crucial element, whereas in music, it is. Um, we parse time by creating rhythm and meter, the beat. And, uh, and so tones seem to behave a certain way. Uh, especially, I'll just simplify it for now, like a, mel a melody seems to move up and down, faster or slower. And so I thought, well, it's uh, what it has in common with objects, with concepts, is there are things in the world that go up and down and move faster and slower. And so I, I call that physical action. And, you know, of course, rhythm contributes to that, uh, meter contributes to that. And then, uh, but then, uh, and by the way, I, I 
uh, fought with myself for a long time. Should I use the word motion or action? And then I realized that action is the wider concept that embraces motions because another type of action in which nothing moves is thought or emotions. And so I said, well, what aspect of, of um, um, music creates a mood or, 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 or you know, and it's not involving something physical moving. And then I realized that uh, um, thinking feelings, and then and and I realized harmony, uh, again, all, all the elements contribute to those things, but harmony and form seem to impact mostly on um, get, creating a mood or a, an emotion psychologically. And so that's actually basically it. And that leads me to the question, how important is programmatic music? By programmatic music, I mean descriptive music, music that uh, is meant to explicitly describe a, a narrative or paint a scene. How, how central is that to your theory? Or is that is that something you touch on in your book? I touch on several times, and we talked about it intensively during the Palm sessions, too. Um, my attitude is you know, they 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 contrast program music to absolute music, which is like, you know, sonata number one. Uh, what's that about? Um, whereas, you know, raindrops in the forest, you, you know, you have a picture there. And basically my statement, my attitude is all music is program music. All music is absolute music. Um, because we, as human beings, we usually attach a program to something, whether it needs it or not. In other words, it, it it brings up images in our minds. That's, that's such a common thing; it barely needs discussing. Um, but at the same time, um, like in my talk that when I call uh, music uh, uh, architecture is frozen music, uh, music is moving architecture, and so um, that's going on at the same time, and that's contributing to our emotional reactions too. Uh, just to clarify, when you say that in, in a, from a certain point of view, all music is programmatic music, is that from primarily from the listener's point of view or from the composer uh, creator's point of view? Both. Or, both? Yeah, the composer, the composer does not have to have a program, though many of the, the most popular composers did, even if they didn't write them down. You know, they, they confessed in letters and whatever that they they had a very clear picture of something in mind. Um but uh, uh, it's not it's not essential to have a program, but all music has to have emotional content. And that emotional content has to be expressed. And whether you associate it with a picture or a story or just let the notes speak for themselves, the, the emotional content is the one constant that links both the programmatic and the uh, absolute um, aspects of the music. Something that's come up in a lot of recent musicological writing uh, over the past couple of decades, which I, I have mixed feelings about this, but it's the application of semiotics to music, the study of musical signs. From So, for example, talking about semiotics in the 18th century, someone will take apart a Mozart piano sonata and they'll say, well, in this particular passage, Mozart is referring to, say, church music, something that sounds like a chorale. And he here he's referring to martial music. Here there's a bit of storm and stress. Here there's maybe a hint of a dance, a hint of a minuet. Do you think there's anything to that? Any, do you think there's any benefit in analyzing music from the point of view of what the composer might have been communicating to contemporary audiences, what an 18th century audience would have gotten out of a Mozart piece or a Haydn piece, for example? Well, absolutely. If we just go back to when I say all music is programmatic, all music is absolute, um, that's exactly what's going on. Uh, 
and and I, I forget. I just started reading a book about the Gallant period, uh, talking about how you know music had different signs or something to the the audience of that era, and uh, of course it did. Um, but uh, that actually made me think about something kind of controversial. I, I say, but I'll say that for later. Um, Please let's be controversial. We love being controversial. Well, you know the funny thing is. Uh, the one thing I spent a lot of time thinking about intellectual history, reading about it, um, and uh, uh, those who've studied history know very well that the, the the modern mind actually, in fact, historians who know nothing about objectivism say the modern mind was created in the Enlightenment, the a whole new way of looking at the way at the world, and that's why all, there are all these new forms. By the way, uh, that's why the the symphony and the sonata and the novel and everything were all born during the Enlightenment, and so that made me realize that music before the Enlightenment was had to be experienced and listened to in a way that's somewhat foreign to us. So, like this is this is the controversial part. When we listen to something by Palestrina, for instance, a, a motet or something from the 16th, is he 15th, 16th century, 16th century? Um, you know, we we have all these romantic and post-enlightenment emotional reactions to the music that I don't think Palestrina had any idea that he was expressing, and his audiences didn't have any idea that were being expressed. We interpret it through a, a post-enlightenment um uh, lens. Then uh, you know, rather than seeing it as they did, now, but that doesn't cause any problems because it's the same notes, the same chords, the same melodies. They're beautiful. Uh, so the fact that we don't hear them the way a 16th century person heard them doesn't hurt the music at all because the music's actual uh, essence is universal and timeless. And another distinction is that, a, say, a mass by Palestrina or a motet, it would have been performed in a certain context. It would have been performed as part of a church service at the at the at the Sistine Chapel where Palestrina was employed whereas nowadays you listen to it either in a concert or say on a CD or a, a streaming we're listening to these pieces as if they were symphonies or as if they were masses by Haydn or Mozart which is a completely different sort of experience in in Palestrina's context the emphasis would have been on the actual ceremony itself the elevation of the host and all the uh, the, right, the exactly. different readings from the gospels and all the everything else that went along with it and they wouldn't have, they, I don't think they heard it as programmatic. They might have, but we don't know because we're post-enlightenment people. Um, so we have a different perspective. Uh, another thing, a colleague of mine pointed something out, you know, uh, you have a, a musical education, a university musical education. We're taught all about the medieval motets. And, um, um, and it turns out that we have no idea when and where those things were performed. In other words, the body of work isn't written down. Like, for instance, you probably remember that they wrote these motets that had a French um, text and then a Latin text. And the French text was rather romantic and the Latin text was um, ecclesiastical. And my theory is they were writing them both down. They weren't meant to be done together. Um, they, you did one or the other. But uh, there's no other musicologist. I've, I've never heard another musicologist say that. And but it was not surprising to find out that there's uh, virtually no evidence of, uh, even though we have these manuscripts that we can look at, we have no evidence of the context in which they were performed or if they were performed in that way. Yeah, I know that some of them would have been performed by 
scholars, monks, for each other, for their own amusement. Something else that starts to emerge in the 15th and 16th century is a kind of rudimentary musical symbolism. You, For example, you start to see this in Josquin uh, and some composers where, for example, when the, when the text is referring to something rising, then the music will do that. When the text is referring to something descending, like there's that famous... Uh, Ave Maria by Josquin, where it talks, where you, there's these descending figures, where it talks about the Holy Spirit descending. And, and then you see that more and more in the, the madrigals, the Italian madrigals from the late 16th century, where there are some very explicit attempts of the music to depict what the text, what the poetic text is actually saying. Now, let me just uh, quickly... By the way, uh, you realize my, uh, my aesthetic theory says that's perfectly appropriate, logical, and probably absolutely correct. Absolutely. Now, let's just uh, quickly check in with our producer, Daniel. I understand we have some super chats and some comments and questions from our viewers. Uh, so no super chat so far, but someone is asking, when will the book be available? Okay, David, tell us about the publication, uh, the projected publication of your book. I'm, I'm, it's going into InDesign right now, and I'm going to, uh, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm using BookBaby to distribute it and print it and everything so it uh, uh, there are just a couple things i'm polishing up right at the moment um and so i'm keeping my eyes crossed and my fingers and everything else crossed and expecting to send it to them within the next two weeks and so it should be the middle of september which at least gives us a little bit of lead time into the conference okay and you're hoping that will you have copies of your book available at the conference yes i'm planning on having copies there and also uh, i'm making an electronic version that will be available uh, my Kindle version might be a little late showing up, but uh, Apple Books and EPUB and all of those things uh, should be available at the same time uh, that the printed version is available. And is your the talk you're giving at the conference, the architecture talk, is that based on some ideas from your book or is that something a little bit separate? Well, uh, I decided to do something slightly perverse. Um one one of the I don't really consider this a disagreement with Ayn Rand, but she um, she says architecture is a fine art, but it's not like the other arts. It doesn't uh, recreate anything in reality. And I thought I thought as a backdoor into my uh, music aesthetics, it might be fun. I, I won't tell you exactly how I'm going to do it, but I was going to point out actually she's understating the case. Architecture does selectively recreate reality. Architecture is even more powerful, according to her definition, than even she said it was. So um, uh, I'm, so I'm using that as a kind of a reverse way to get to my, my, uh, uh, my thesis, my theses in my book. Okay. And since we're being a, a little bit controversial on this show, uh, I sometimes shock other objectivists when I say that I'm an admirer of a lot of music of Arnold Schoenberg. What is your position on Schoenberg and atonal music in general? Because I, I know I looked in, in the, the titles of your, uh, the table of contents of your book, you talk about tonal melodies and what makes, uh, distinguishes a good tonal melody. Do you have a position on some of the innovations of Arnold Schoenberg and 20th century composers and atonal music more generally? Well, in the first place, I um, have a chapter called What is Dissonant About Dissonance? Um, and I try to explain what's going on there. Um, by the way, I saw that at Ocon, you did a, a talk on Wagner. Shame, shame, shame. Um, Wagner is my favorite composer. Well, Richard Strauss is my favorite composer. Wagner is my second favorite. Now I'd probably put Mozart in there somewhere. Um, the 
but and, and in my in my book i actually have uh, um a section uh i i have a a, a, a few measures from the Berg violin concerto and he was part of that school with arnold schoenberg and webern uh, in my chapter on the rule of two, I point out that even when the, the harmony is extremely dissonant and, and hard to follow, there's still the same structural elements that you'll find in earlier music. And of course, Schoenberg, uh, being the, the founder of that school, uh, he incorporates all of the elements of post-Romantic music. And But I think that uh, the, the nature of serialism and 12-tone music as such is uh, impossible to integrate. And so you can like it, you can enjoy it. And also, you know, it has a place. Uh, the movie, The Planet of the Apes, Jerry Goldsmith used 12-tone music actually for the whole score. So where I differ with a lot of people is it has an, an expressive range, an emotional range, but it's very narrow. Also, but, speaking of film music, uh, the composer David Shire, who wrote the music for The Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3, he actually yeah. uses Schoenberg's 12-tone method in the, the, the score for that. Film, right and, and John Williams uh, in the in uh, ET the extraterrestrial the dialogue between the guy playing the synthesizer and the aliens is is 12 you mean close encounters close encounters of uh, the close, third um, yeah yeah sorry close encounters thank you yeah yeah so uh, so it proves that it has emotional content and and it has a context but I prefer music that can go from lighthearted and beautiful to dark and dreary, you know, has that kind of range. And for me, the the use of dissonance and, and the destruction of tonality, which was his intent, um, makes it, it narrows its emotional range quite a bit. But there's still so much to admire. He still was a great musician. He knew what he was doing, even though it wasn't a necessarily a good idea to do it. Uh, yeah, and I, I, I certainly, I think, I do think the Albenberg Violin Concerto is one of the most beautiful and moving works to come from that particular school of composition. So that's something well, I do too. But I, I, I find myself always waiting for the Bach Chorale, and and so glad when it finally shows up. Yes. Uh, so let me check in one last time with Daniel. Do we have any other questions, super chats, or announcements for other shows today? We have a super chat from Jonathan. Thank you so much. And also a super chat from Christopher. Thank you so much. And another super chat just came in from Gene. Thank you so much. He says, apologies if I missed it. Who is the tar target audience for how music moves us? Will musicians benefit from reading it? Oh, okay. So let's have that as our final question. Who Who is the, and I know you mentioned this in the introduction to the book, who is your intended audience? Well, I kept changing my mind on it. And I realized at the end of the day, because of the the discussion, several of the chapters, uh, someone a train a person a trained musician who's interested in music philosophy is the ideal person. But I think there are, as the Brits love to say, bleeding chunks that uh, someone who's just like had a, a little training like piano lessons or been in a band um, and has a curiosity about philosophical ideas, I think there's a good deal in there. Um, that they will enjoy. And I'm also going to make available uh, recordings of the musical examples so that uh, uh, people can hear what I'm talking about. So even if they can't read the music, they, you know, they can get an idea. Um, it, this is just me. I, I've been collecting these things all these years and call it my last will and testament or something. I just wanted to get it out there and, uh, and make it available for anyone who would, might be interested. I think there's a lot of interest and a lot of curiosity among objectivists for music in general. So I think there'll be a lot of uh, interest in your book. 
David Barry, thank you very much for joining today. I hope we can chat again soon. I hope the conference in October goes well. Thank you to all our viewers. And we'll have some information in the description, the video description about the upcoming conference and how to register for it. Thanks again to all our viewers, all our super chats, our producer, Daniel. And uh, I wish you all a fine day. And uh, oh, Daniel, are there any final announcements before we wrap up? Uh, in one minute, the reality show. Make sure to join us. The link is in the chat. Okay. Thank you, Daniel. Again, thank you to our viewers. And with that, I wish you all the best of premises.